We start 2 Samuel chapter 10 this morning. So we trust God to see what he would say to us about the realities of the mission. Right? There are some realities that I do believe over these next few weeks that God would have us to understand as we trust him to live the Great Commission. It's been said many times, no good deed goes unpunished. We've heard that, right? So God showed his kindness to Mephibosheth through David, and he also showed it to Saul's servant, Ziba. And as you keep reading in 2 Samuel, you're going to realize that that good deed did not go unpunished. So we'll deal with that. Here in chapter 10, uh, David wants to show kindness once again, and we're going to come face to face with how that gets punished. So there are some realities that I do believe that you and I need to get from the Word of God as we consider living the mission. 2 Samuel chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass after this, so that would have to be after what we've read in chapter 9, that the king of the children of Ammon died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his stead. Then said David... I will show kindness unto Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness unto me. And David sent to comfort him by the hand of his servants for his father. And David's servants came into the land of the children of Ammon. Now, the specific account of the kindness that Nahash, king of Ammon, showed to David is not recorded for us. There were some things that we can look at and speculate and say, well, it could be this or it could be that, but it's not definitive. But learning of his death, fresh off of showing kindness to Mephibosheth, David wants to now do the same thing to the son of Nahash, Hunan. Now, the experience of showing kindness to Mephibosheth, that experience for David would have been very enjoyable and gratifying. Why? Because Mephibosheth was receptive and grateful. I mean, here's David who is doing what is right before God, and he goes the extra mile to to locate Mephibosheth, have him brought to Jerusalem, and to integrate him into his family and all that. And of course, Mephibosheth is falling over himself with submission and gratefulness and all of that. If David's motives were pure here in chapter 10 he would have anticipated the same response from Hanan. I want to show you kindness. Your father just died. And you're going to be just like Mephibosheth, right? You're going to be grateful, receptive. If we are seeking the Lord for opportunities to show his kindness to people, which I do believe we should be actively seeking, we should be actively praying, we should be trusting God for this, then I do believe subconsciously that's what we anticipate, don't we? If we show kindness to people, they're going to be receptive. They're going to be grateful. They're, They're going to be like, oh my goodness, right? I mean, your heart's in the right place. You love God. You you love them and, and you just want them to I mean, you're not doing it for your glory. You're not doing it with any strings attached. You just want to glorify God and be a blessing to them and have it be an edifying thing to them. So David essentially sent ambassadors 
to the son of Nahash believing that they're going to represent his interest of showing kindness. That's why they were there. That's why they went. They were his ambassadors, if you would. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, we're told by the Apostle Paul that we are what? Ambassadors for Christ. Right? David sent his servants. He sent his ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ. And has he not sent us? He has. He sent us. So, as ambassadors for Christ, listen, we are his representatives on earth. We are the representatives of Christ on earth. How does the world see Christ? Through us. We're his representatives. We're his ambassadors. But there is a reality that emerges about the children of Ammon that is relevant to every ambassador for Christ today. Like this is a reality that you and I have to come face to face with. Because listen, living the mission is not always kind. It's not always comfortable. It's not always ideal. It's not always convenient. But Genesis 19, 36 to 38, thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. I think sometimes we can read things in the Word of God and just keep going. Just kind of gloss over it. What I just read to you literally happened. This is how dark things can go. And it all started with a man just pitching his tent towards Sodom. Just, just actually even before that, even just looking in that direction. And here we are. Unbelievable. And the firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab. The same is the father of the Moabites unto this day. And the younger, she also bare a son and called his name Banami. The same is the father of the children of Ammon unto this day. So the Moabites and the Ammonites were byproducts of drunkenness and incest. That's the truth. The Ammonites and the Moabites hired a soothsayer, Balaam, to curse Israel. The Ammonites and the Moabites were an idolatrous and wicked people. And although the king of Ammon had showed kindness to David, they were still who they were. They were still who they were. And that was also who David, listen, was sending his ambassadors to that people. So listen, here we go. This is the first reality that you and I must do the math on when it comes to just processing the mission, being real about it. The Lord will send us to the wicked. The Lord will send us to the wicked. 
bro, I love you. You're always looking out for me. I'm actually cold. <laughs> I'm sorry. I am just making a mess, but thank you. You're the, you got my heart. I love you. Thank you. I'm like, okay, I'm cold. <laughs> so, but I mean, is this, is, is this not a sober truth? That he will send you to the wicked? History is filled with examples of the Lord doing this. Legendary missionary Jim Elliott had no doubt whatsoever that God wanted him to tell the Akas about Jesus. Who were the Akas? They were a dangerous and uncivilized Indian tribe in the Ecuadorian jungle who were known to kill all outsiders ever caught in their area. And they most certainly did that to Jim Elliott and four other missionaries with the spear. If you haven't seen the movie End of the Spear, I highly recommend it. Corey Ten Boom, who survived Hitler's concentration camps, was in a church in Munich, Germany, giving a talk about forgiveness. Incredible woman of God she was. When a man approached her, put his hand out, and said, a fine message. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. She said, and I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me. Of course, how could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women. It was the first time that she had come face to face with one of her captors from the concentration camp. And she said that her blood seemed to freeze. At that moment, the evil and the wickedness that she came to know in those concentration camps had resurface right before her eyes and her very presence in her face. Evil, wickedness. She remembered what this man had done. This was the guard at a concentration camp where her sister died. He said to her, you mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk. I was a guard in there. She knew that. He didn't remember her, but she remembered him. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. And again, the hand camp comes out face-to-face, direct, will you forgive me? She said, I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy, her sister, had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking. 
I mean, she just gave this wonderful talk about forgiveness. Right? And I'm certain that, you know, when, and again, her heart was in the right place, but again, when we do things like this, we have a certain situation, a certain person in mind. I don't think she had this guy in mind. Silently she prayed, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You simply supply the feeling. And so woodenly, she said, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands, and then his and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. I forgive you, brother, not guard. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. She showed this man God's kindness. God sent her to show kindness to a man who up to that point had only showed her wickedness. Coming out of 2 Samuel chapter 9, I do believe that the people that we are envisioning showing kindness to look just like Mephibosheth, don't they? They don't look like the Aka Indians. They don't look like a former Nazi guard at a concentration camp who did awful things to people. We're not thinking about that. We envision putting together a, a lovely basket for our neighbors. Freshly baked cookies, right, Lori? You know, maybe a Walmart gift card and some other nice Essentials that people will enjoy. Gum, mints, lip gloss, and all the things that we tend to, you know, maybe a nice coffee mug, and it's just so beautiful. And, and they're going to get this bag and go, oh my goodness, how kind of our neighbor. And they're going to come over and say thank you, and we're going to invite them in for tea, and we're going to have nice conversations. And through that, we're going to get to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we envision, don't we? That's how this is going to go down. That's certainly not wrong. We just need to know if we're being sent, it's not always going to look like that. It's not. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. The founder of this wicked city, Nineveh, was Nimrod, the grandson of Ham. And if you've done some Bible study, you know the implications of that. And the Assyrians, listen, they were absolutely brutal. They were merciless. 
they were wicked beyond imagination. That was the city. But God sent Jonah to them, why? To show them mercy and grace. And you know the story. Jonah did not like these people, did he? God, you can send me anywhere, but don't send me to Nineveh. Luke 10, verse 3. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Wolves in the Bible are associated with false teachers. These are workers of the devil. And he says, I am sending you. You will be among them as my disciples. I am sending you knowing that. You need to know that. Philippians 2, 15. That you may be blameless and harmless to sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Do we not live in a crooked and perverse nation? We most certainly do. And as ambassadors for Christ, that's exactly where we've been sent. To a crooked and perverse people. Like you, I am trusting the Lord for opportunities to show kindness to the lost. And I'm going to tell you, uh, <laughs> I was presented with an opportunity to do that, and it wasn't Mephibosheth. It wasn't what I had in mind. I had 2 Samuel chapter 9 in mind. That's what I had in mind. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where it's obvious to you that you are in the presence of darkness. Yeah. And the Lord says, show them my kindness. And I'm like, no, I was thinking about the gift bag. <laughs> the freshly baked cookies and like you know, set up a meeting to get together and have coffee and biscuits and nice conversation. I wasn't thinking about darkness and being uncomfortable the whole time. Some of our opportunities to show God's kindness will look like 2 Samuel 9 and some will look like 2 Samuel 10. This is the truth. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the reasons that the time we spend together in prayer is so critical. It's so critical because 2 Samuel 9 and 2 Samuel 10 awaits us. We're going we're gonna to run into both. You're going to run into people who are, are going to be receptive and grateful and, and just to have your time and, and your kindness and you're going to run to people who are just vile and nasty and hateful and evil and dark. And God says, be kind. We see this in verse 3 of 2 Samuel 10. Let me just tell you, 
It says, okay, it says, and the princes. So my wife had to correct me. For years, all right, listen, I'm, I'm not the brightest bulb in the ceiling or the sharpest pencil in the book. I, I understand. But for years, I would just say prince. Like, because to me, princess is P-R-I-N-C-E-N-E-S-S. Prince, right, or I just butchered that, didn't I? <laughs> no, I was thinking princess, P-R-I-N-C-E-S-S. Sorry. It was a night game last night. I was up a little late. <laughs> Pray for me. That's why I have notes. Because <laughs> I'll blow it, right? But no, I just, princess, just doesn't, it doesn't sound right to me because it's one S. And I know what you're thinking. You need to go back to school. All right. Well, pray for me. Okay. All right. But it's princess, right? John's nodding. Like, he'll always be honest with me, even if it hurts. And it does most of the time. So, and the princess of the children of Ammon said unto Hanan, their lord, Thinkest thou that David doth honor thy father, that he had sent comforters unto thee? Hath not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? God's kindness is not always welcomed, is it? It's not. The princess or counselors of the king suspected that what David wanted to do was conquer them. This isn't for real. This isn't sincere, which they had no basis for. And some have actually accused David for being in the wrong here. Knowing what God says in Deuteronomy about the Ammonites, why would David even try and show them kindness? He was out of bounds. Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 and 4 and an Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever, because they met you not with bread and with water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt, and because they hired against thee Balaam, the son of Beor of Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse thee. Now, based on that, you could make an argument that maybe David didn't need to do this from the, from the start, based on that. The only thing that keeps me from doubling down on that is we don't know the details regarding the kindness that Nahash showed to David. And it very well could have been that David, I mean, he makes that clear that, hey, he was kind to me, so I'm just responding in kind. He was just trying to say, hey, I, I just want to, I'm sorry your dad died, and we want to comfort you and be a blessing. He was a blessing to me. How do you argue with that? It seems that whatever he did, it was substantial enough for David to do what he did. Either way, it wasn't received, but here we go. This is the second reality that you and I absolutely, I mean, we, we've got to make peace with the fact that the Lord's going to send us to the wicked. But listen, here's the second one. The lost are wary. They're wary. They are wary. The typical lost person questions the Bible and is suspicious of the believer trying to present the gospel to them. This is what you're going to run into. 
This is typically what you run into. These men were suspicious. They were wary. They were distrusting. David has an agenda. He's got a motive here. This is what you and I are going to run to. But let me give you some reasons for why the lost are wary. Okay, number one, Satan. Satan. Uh, Acts 26, 17 and 18. Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. What was he being sent to? To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. So here what Paul was doing was he was recounting his testimony on that Damascus road before King Agrippa. That's the context here. But the lost are in darkness and they are under the power of Satan. That's the score spiritually. That's the spiritual reality. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Let me tell you one of the most sobering and I would even say fearful experiences that you will ever have as an ambassador for Christ is when you are trying to shine the light of the glorious gospel into the eyes and the mind and the ears and the heart of a lost person. And they are I mean, man, they are, they are fighting tooth and nail. Well, what about this? And what about that? And how about this over here? And, and trying to divert the conversation away from the cross. Well, how old is the earth? And, and, and oh, I mean, I've, I've, I've heard it all, or at least I've heard a lot of it. I'm sure I haven't heard it all, but I've heard a lot of, a lot of the deviations, if you would, diversions. Let me tell you why that is so sobering and why it's fearful, because in that moment, they have no idea who's behind that. They don't know who is thinking and speaking for them. It gives me as close of of an experience as I can possibly have to what Jesus experienced when he said to his servant Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter had given place to the devil. And when you do that, he can absolutely think and speak for you. I've been in situations where, I mean, you're standing there and you're like, wow. The devil is working right now to keep the gospel hid from this person. Brothers and sisters, evangelism is not hard because you're just not good at it or because you don't know enough Bible 
or because you are an introvert. That's not why evangelism is hard. Evangelism is hard because it is intense spiritual warfare. That's why it's hard. Anytime you are trying to shine the light of the glorious gospel into the darkness of a lost sinner, you have stepped into an intense spiritual combat zone. And it is real. And the Holy Spirit is is working and, and, and using truth and and the devil was saying, I don't think so. That's why it's hard. This is why we must pray before we share the gospel. We must pray while we're sharing the gospel. And we must pray after we've shared the gospel. Whenever I'm sharing the gospel and I'm having this conversation with this person, there is a full-blown conversation going on from my heart to God. I'm praying. Because I know (laughs) I'm, I'm at war right now. This is war. So the first reason that the lost are wary or skeptical is because of Satan. But here's the other one. Shysters. Shysters. These are those who cheat, lie, and defraud others. And because the lost have seen countless episodes of people who claim to be people of God to only violate and cheat others, what they do is now they lump anybody that appears to be religious, they lump them into that pot of hypocrisy. They do. And while you and I can look at denominations that have fed that narrative and they've done some awful, atrocious things to people, listen, independent, fundamental Baptists have done their fair share to feed that narrative. There are pastors who pastor churches just like this who have done unspeakable things. Unspeakable. Embezzling hundreds of thousands of dollars from the church. Committing adultery with a number of women. As a child... Subconsciously, I associated, and I I did, I, I just, as a child, subconsciously, I associated pastors and religious men, I associated them with pimps. I did. I, I absolutely did. And that might sound strong, but listen, here's why I did that. Because most of the men that I was around who were, that I was exposed to at least, who were pastors or gospel singers, were womanizers. And it was known. It wasn't, it wasn't hidden. It it was very public. And so subconsciously, I just figured, well, I guess, I guess when you get to that level and you're that spiritual, I guess those are things you're entitled to. 
They drove the same kind of cars, wore the same kind of jewelry, carried themselves the same kind of way. I mean, I, my view of pastors, at least what I was exposed to as a kid, these guys were, uh, they were the exception to the rule. They were very big deals. Very big deals. They had special chairs, special parking spaces, special financial gifts, and they had their pick of the litter when it came to the ladies in the congregation. Regarding the qualifications for the office of pastor, 1 Timothy 3.7 says, Moreover, he must have a good report to them which are without lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. A pastor must have a good testimony before the world. He must. Right? I've, I've had this conversation with my son. I said, listen, just so you know, you and I have the same name. We do. And for many years, we're going to have the same address. So I'm Kenneth Preston Morgan, and so are you. So guess what? If you don't handle your business financially, that's going to be a problem for me. And if I don't handle my business financially, that's going to be a problem for you. Because at some point, you're going to go to buy a car or try to get a mortgage for a house, and they're going to go, are you kidding me? So to the glory of God... (laughs) Uh, you handle your business, and, and I will handle mine. But your testimony, it, 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 it counts, it matters. Without that, not only will we have no credibility with the lost world, but listen, neither will the gospel that we're trying to preach. They're going to go, no way. Obviously, having a good report of them which are without is not limited to pastors. It's applicable to all of us. Your testimony is something that God uses in your evangelism. if, If anything, we talk about it, it earns you the right to actually preach it. Because your life says that you're the real deal. I I've seen this a number of times, and it kind of goes like this. Yeah, I do believe that lost people are spiritually blind, but let me tell you something that they can detect over time. A hypocrite. I mean, I've seen believers in their workplace, I mean, just trash their testimony. Just trash it. Why? Because you can't hide who you really are when you're in a place for 40 hours a week over a period of years. They, they, they start to see and pick up on things. They do. They, they start to hear how you, not you, but, but, uh, but they, you know, how, how this person who, uh, man, they wouldn't miss church, nothing in the world, but my goodness, when we talk about their husband or their wife, they just talk to them about them like a dog. Oh, he gets on my nerves. Oh, she, <laughs> they hear that. And so many other things. How about this? A godly testimony gives credence to the gospel that is being preached. It does. There are believers who have destroyed their testimony to the lost. Guess how? 
through some kind of financial dealing. They were dishonest in a financial dealing. I had a pastor tell me one time about being at a church and at the end of the service, there, they, there was an altar call, there was an invitation, and he said a man got up, walked forward, he thought the man was coming to receive Christ. So he met this man, they had a conversation where the man told him, standing right there at the altar, during the invitation, I just came to tell you that that man right there who sings in your choir claims to be a Christian. I'm in business with him, and I'm telling you, he's not. And if that's what a Christian is, I want nothing to do with your God or this church. Wow. Your testimony matters. To the lost, why would they hear the gospel from a shyster? Why would they? The last reason, there's more, but self. Self. There's something in man that says, I know a better way than the way. I know a better way. And that way is consistent with the way of Cain who brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord works. No blood sacrifice, but I'm bringing you an offering from the fruit of the ground. That's going to work, right? God says, I can't accept that. Proverbs 26, 12, Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. Uh, someone who is wise in their own conceit, listen, they have overestimated themselves. Which is very dangerous. This is why the Bible tells us that there's more hope of a fool than that person. So listen, here we go. We're going to wrap up with this, and this is, boy, if you needed a spark plug to pray for the loss, I'm going to give it to you right here. Tragically, most lost people take an eternal gamble that their good works will be enough in the end. That's what they're banking on. So they're going to gamble with their soul that when the dust clears, they're going to stand before God or you know, whatever this, you know, pearly gate fairy tale is, and, and, and they're going to make a case for themselves. Okay, God, yeah, I, I know that I thought things I shouldn't have thought, and I said things I shouldn't have said, and, and I did things I shouldn't have done, but, but, but God, I, I, I gave to charity. God, I, I, I took great care of my family. God, I, I helped my neighbors. I, I had an elderly neighbor, and I would go and mow their yard, and, 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 and God, I, I, I put my kids through college. God, I used to go every Thanksgiving and I would serve the homeless in, in my local shelter. That's, I mean, God, I never murdered anybody. I never used drugs. We're good, right? Not at the great white throne judgment. You're going to lose that case. 
This is what most lost people are doing, though. They're making an eternal gamble that in the end, <laughs> this is how it's going to work. So I want to leave you with some points for prayer. We've got some time. Right, Mark? We have a little time? Okay. So can we just keep praying for the Lord to prepare us uh, for 2 Samuel 9 and 2 Samuel 10 opportunities? And, and this is going to go next level next week or when, when we're back into this. We've got a special focus next week. Um, but but you, you're going to see very clearly <laughs> um, what, what we started today. And then for our need to put on the character of Christ, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, Romans 13, 14. Let's make sure that we are the kind of people that are not giving offense to the, to the loss where they can blame the ministry because of us. And then finally, for the person or persons in our lives who is making that eternal gamble. I promise you in a room this size, I doubt there's anybody who doesn't know someone who is making this gamble. That if they died right now, this is they would be counting on what is it, the, the triple beam scale? I did this much good, I did this much evil. I made it. Brothers and sisters, that scale does not exist at the, at the great right throne judgment. <laughs> because all our righteousness is what? It's filthy rags. Father, help us to make peace with these two realities that we've looked at so far. God, help us to understand that you are going to send us into situations that are not going to be pleasant, that are not going to be favorable or even enjoyable. And then, Lord, would you help us to understand and be sensitive to the fact of the people that we are trying to show your kindness to? They're wary. And Lord, Satan and even believers have given them reason to be wary. And so, Lord, help us to uh, not just hear these things, but, Lord, to hide these things in our heart and remember them when we're having these conversations, Lord, that we should be having weekly. In Jesus' name, amen.